0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode number 420, 420, baby. And what better guest on 420 than a uh, legendary writer of tales involving narcotics, Mr. Irvin Welsh. I was delighted to get to chat with Irving. Um, as I mentioned in the podcast, I got sent a little preview of his new show, Crime, which is on BritBox, all out now. A, a BritBox exclusive. I got s- sent the episodes, and I was going to watch a couple in preparation because I've got plenty to talk to Irving Welsh about. For God's sake, he made Train Spotting and Ecstasy and Acid House and just so much good shit. But then I ended up watching all six episodes and absolutely adoring it. It's great. I really enjoyed it. So yeah, uh, we jumped on Zoob. We only had the Zoom recording. Normally I record... S- s- separate ends. Again, it still it sounded fine, and Buddy Piece is the best the best podcast producer in the land, so um, you won't even notice, but I thought I'd pre-warn you of that. Yeah, as ever, we're brought to you by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. That's where you can get all my merch and all the goodness, and patreon.com forward slash Pip is where you can join the patron and support the podcast for like a dollar a month or a dollar fifty or whatever it works out as or a quid or whatever. So head over there and do that. But um most importantly enjoy this episode and then go and watch crime on BritBox. Um this is episode 420 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with Irvin Welsh this piece of fiction is the intro to distraction pieces. this piece of fiction is the intro to distraction pieces. Right, I'm here today with Irvin Welsh. How are you, sir?
1: I'm very well. How's it going? It's good. It's
0: good. Are you enjoying... I, I, I saw a tweet that you seem to be enjoying, the kind of the the promo run that you're on at the moment, because they can be hit or miss,
1: right? They can be
0: yeah, exhausted I mean, or laborious, but this seems like you, a fun you,
1: one. You have to just kind of, you know, knuckle down and barge through it really you know there's not it's uh you can you know it's it's just one of these things that you can't you know it's it's a good sign because you you realize that you've got to this point it means you have actually got something out so it becomes real basically like yeah
0: yeah yeah i feel you well obviously i want to talk about crime um and loads of other stuff we've got a good amount of time on this so we can can really get into it but we've got an unusual connection And I think I think we tweeted about it at one point, but um, there's someone out there who's got a tattoo that's a portrait of the two of us, (laughs) Um, which is unusual. It's on it's it's fabulous. uh, It's done by a guy called G Davis Art on Instagram, and you have to scroll back to like 2017. But it's like an optical illusion, so it looks like a skull. But then when you zoom in, it's you drinking a bottle of Monkey Forty Seven Gin, um, and me just stroking my beard and looking pretentious as I as I tend to do. So uh, yeah, it's a strange a strange Ah, link that we have. Brilliant. (laughs) How 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 have you found the kind of fandom thing over your career? Because you're you know you're an 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 adored writer and creator. How have you found that with
1: yeah, yourself. I mean, it was, it was, I've got used to it a bit now. It was kind of strange at first in the 90s because I thought one of the, the benefits of being a writer is that nobody will recognise you. You know, you're just a, a face on a dust jacket. Yeah. But, um, I think, I don't know, you know, the, the visual recognition came to quite quickly, even before the film. So it was quite a strange thing. You know, because um, you know, when I was younger, I always craved that level of attention. Basically, I was a kind of sort of young, kind of narcissistic, sort of wannabe kind of musician and all that. You know, and I thought this would be great. And then, you know, when it happened, you know, it happened when I was thirty instead of twenty. So it was like, um, it was like, oh fuck, I don't really want this anymore. You know, I don't, you know. So it's that kind of um, capable what you wish for thing. So I, I found that a bit difficult at first because. Um, I was living quite a, a settled life and I, I didn't want to be um, to be kind of sort of uh, torn up and thrust into this kind of um, mad arena that fame and recognition, of, you know. so uh, But I tried to avoid it as much as I could and then I got, you know, I, I kind of sort of dipped my toe in it occasionally. But the good thing is that, you know, if, I've always been a working writer. I've always gone from one project to the next project. So yeah. I've never really had that much time to kind of bask in it.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, Edinburgh is is the location for crime for for train spotting for a a a lot of your work essentially i love edinburgh um always have i think it's it's such a beautiful city i love the people of edinburgh i did the fringe a few a good few years back and my aunt came along who has lived in edinburgh her whole life must have been over 50 at that point point and she came to see my show had, n- had never been to a single edinburgh fringe show and that's what i love about the people of edinburgh <laughs> they're, they're not interested in that nonsense they were very much like my aunt and and all of her people were like yeah This thing happens in August, which people think is Edinburgh, and people think of as Edinburgh because they come at one time a year. But the real city is a a different place. Yeah, but most
1: of the locals is always like, oh, I can't get served in the pub properly, or you know, can't (laughs) even fucking buses are too are too full and all this kind of nonsense. Like you know, so yeah, you 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 have a you do have a, a sort of and a, a kind of ambivalent reaction to it. Like, you know, it's, it's so, 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 I mean, it's it is a. It's quite an amazing thing, all these kind of shows and events crammed into this kind of, not not a massive metropolis, yeah. but, you know, just crammed into this town, really, like, you know, um, and everywhere it's kind of being utilised. So it is, you know, there is a, a unique kind of buzz and vibe here. And, you know, I would say to, it, to anybody, like, it's something they should experience once, yeah. you know, at least, yeah. In the Life's Edinburgh Festival. Um, but you do get blase about it. I mean, uh, I remember like uh, when I was, uh, I don't remember this actually, but when I was a kid, my mum kept the newspaper cut and It had a picture of her and my auntie Joyce. They were both kind of in the Botanic Gardens, and me and my cousin Raymond were kind of both kind of like babies, basically. You know, and they were chain smoking. And uh, it had like kind of, put, a, the headline was Outspoken Mum in the evening news if my mum just said uh, <laughs> a personal the not for the likes of us for all these rich fuckers that come into town and all that you know it's the usual kind of thing but it's a great headline and the, the pair of them looked very kind of trashy glam They're kind yeah. of heavy hairs and their cigarettes and all that and the sort of coats sitting there so I was, I'm massively proud of that um Kind of, that uh, evening news, sort of, and it was right. It was like a, a big kind of a big headline, kind of as well. Yeah,
0: outspoken mum is a outspoken wonderful mum. Uh, yeah. Is that's a character?
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love
0: so, that. So, so what was it like growing up in Edinburgh? Because, as you say, you you the, you had a period of wanting to be a musician and being in bands and stuff, but a lot of places in the UK or anywhere. Outside of l- London, really, until more recent years, things like working in l- literature or the entertainment industry weren't necessarily pushed forward as viable options. So, what kind no. of kid were you to kind of think, "Here's what I want to do"?
1: Well, I mean, I think it was like because um, I, I grew up, you know, I was born in Leith and a kind of the it was like this, the classic kind of tenement life, you know, by the in the, the dock area uh, and. Um, Everything was geared around kind of three things. Uh, there was the there was the docks. Uh, there was the where my, my family worked in, and there was a merchant navy, and there was Rob Caldon shipyards. So that was the kind of um, that was the sort of three main influences. And I was always drawn more as a kid. I was always drawn more to the the sailor. The seamen's because like, they, they had they had all the stories like you know yeah and they were you know when you as a kid when you listen to all the, the older guys you know they weren't old guys then. <laughs> they were still quite young guys but you saw them as old guys when you were a kid and uh, they were uh, they had all the interesting stories it was like um, the shipyard workers was all about kind of violence it was all about stabbing because they're all tools you know tool you know guys on tools and all that so they had that mentality. The dockers was all about thieving, but the um you know the, the merchant seamen is all about travelling to exotic places and kind of meeting exotic women and all that and getting all the you know, so it just seemed to be a much more it suited my kind of um aesthetic kind of a lot more. So listen to a lot of um, these tales. And then we moved down the estuaries a lot of a lot of families did with you know what they called the slum clearance. They first moved us down to the prefabs in Pilton and then the Masonettes and Muirhouse. They were like, you know, they were. That was a kind of. Uh, I didn't think about it in this way then, but Muirhouse was a, a basically a, a kind of. Uh, in Pilton were like factories. You know, these schemes were like factory towns because it was like um, Parsons, Peebles, Ferranti's, uh, Bruce's, United Wire. Uh, they were they were basically there to service these industrial units that were, you know, the, these yeah. factories that were out there. And uh, when they shut down, you know, there's nothing left. Uh, so. That was my, my you know, my kind of experience was that very archetypal, really, like, um, sort of uh, Leith, North Edinburgh, kind of growing up in that place, like, you know, from tenement to scheme. And I've finally just been reading, uh, just, you know, Bobby Gillespie's wrote a, uh, a book called Tenement Kid. And it's very, it's very very resonant with me, you know, because, you know, cause Bobby's a friend, but, um, it's also that it's a similar kind of background, you know, it's like you kind of start off in a tenement and then tenements get knocked down and you move out to a scheme and, uh, you know, you're obsessed by music basically. So I I found that a really um, fascinating kind of emotional book to read basically because, you know, all the stuff about the the music and the clothes and all that kind of came back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I completely understand that. And I can imagine hearing all of that story telling as you're growing up from different areas again it's it's there was a guy i used to gig with a lot a a good friend of mine a spoken word artist called polar bear and he also he writes under the name of stephen camden now and he used to say because because we'd all feel very uncomfortable being referred to as poets or anything like that because we were just like well like his his argument was I'm just doing what my nan used to do around the breakfast table, yes. or around the dinner table. I'm just getting up and telling stories, yes. and it feels like if you've grown up around those working class story t- telling um, gatherings.
1: I mean, I, I think it here it comes from that kind of Celtic oral tradition, you know, where yeah. you they would never write anything down. It would just, you know, they would just come out with intricate storytelling, and I, I sort of. Um, i i amassed all these stories and all the you know and i just got into that way of uh, of thinking you know that everybody was um there was always some you know, nothing could happen to someone without somebody else having an anecdote that was a big, yeah. long, winding kind of um sort of elaborate tale. And I loved all that. I loved all that stuff. Yeah, completely. Uh, sitting, you know, sitting listening to as a kid, I would always be sneaking downstairs when I should be in my bed. I'd be hiding behind the couch. I'd be listening to all their, their tales and all that. And then when I, I couldn't wait you know, when I was in the playground or your mates at school, I went to school to listen to my, my, my pals and to crack on with them. And, to, you know, I wasn't interested in anything teachers were saying. And none, none of us were. We just wanted to hang out with each other and, and talk a lot of shit about what we'd done the night before. And uh, and then I couldn't wait to get into a pub, you know, because that, that gives you license to do all that. You know, yeah. you just with your pals, and you come out with all these kind of tales, and um, and you know, and moving south, I moved to London quite early, and uh, it was great to you know to, to meet all these different people from not just from London, from all other parts of the UK and further afield, you know, and listen to all their tales as well. It was, it was just a massively enriching, enriching time. You know?
0: I love that, and I love the as you touched upon the kind of local tales where if if anything happens, everyone's got a long winded a winded story about it, and half the time the thing that's happened is a tiny part of their long-winded story. It's just, it's just, just an yeah, excuse yeah, to tell yeah, their actual yeah, it's, it's, other it's, 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 story. It's, it's, and I walk it's, past it's, that. Um, All right, well, this isn't actually related.
1: <laughs> it's the mass, you know. People don't realise that they are, you know, the, the, mass, the masses of embellishment that goes yeah. on, people don't realise that they're actually writing creative fiction as they're yeah. it, 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 it pushing
0: us on, yeah. So, so did that motivate you to, uh, to write, I guess, because it was your first book that just went, crazy it was train spotting that kind of blew up and
1: yeah i mean it's funny because you know i was in different bands and i always like writing ballads um i noticed every song that i wrote was telling a story so i mean you know, ballads are basically just short stories set to music really you know yeah and i thought when the music wasn't working i thought well just keep on with the stories and um i decided at one point you know i, I thought of, I'm, I'm not gonna i'm not gonna do anything musically but i might do something with um with you know, all, this, all these kind of tales that I've got to tell, you know. So I put them together, and I thought, this' no kind of make or break, really. I thought, I'm going to really put everything into this book. I'm really going to go for it. And it was it was so strange, because through being kind of so, so disappointed and having kind of doors slammed in my face and being knocked back um, with everything to do with, with, with music, making no headway at all, uh, to suddenly just have a book published by the biggest publisher of you know, becoming a cult book, becoming a bestseller, becoming a big uh, award-winning stage play, becoming a, a, you know, an international film. And it was just like this almost overnight success. It was like you know, I, I went from kind of having nothing to kind of being set up for life as a writer within three years. And I thought, well, this is just so strange. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, it's, it, this is, you know, I, I, I was so used to getting kind of um, knockbacks and rejections. And that's really what a writer's life is mostly like. You know, I mean, I feel embarrassed when I, that's why I play up my my kind of musical failure background, you know, because I feel embarrassed when I talk to other writers and they say, you know, they're all saying, oh, it took me years to get published, I had this book and, uh, you know, and I got rejected by every single publisher and then I I redid it and then it got rejected again and then I redid it and it got rejected again and then somebody published it and it kind of did well and all that you know and for me it was instant you know the, the success was instant it's incredibly rare and atypical and I'm embarrassed about it in a sense yeah. so I always kind of go on about how I've paid my dues through rejection through other in other mediums.
0: Yeah I, 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 I love that and it it, it it broke through and got its place on very much on your terms. I remember at the time all the talk about it being very much sc- sc- Scottish dialect and not w- watered down or changed at all. And that's one of the things I loved about crime is is y- you're 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 seeing real Scottish accents, Scottish f- turns of phrases, and things like that, not a watered down kind of uh, an affected sc- Scottish accent. I spoke to Limmy about this a while back about how he was kind of buried away on BBC S- Scotland for for so long because it was kind of deemed the english won't understand this it's too <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how will they translate your 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 your, your strange ways so, so, so how important was that for you to have it feel properly scottish not
1: yeah i mean i think that um you know the you know the the kind of gatekeepers for part of a better word of the media we kind of kinda of patronise the public a little bit about that yeah. kind of thing. I mean, it's like um people in England have been vibing on Billy Connolly for years and years and you know, of in South Africa, Canada, there's not been any real problem. And I think um sometimes people enjoy kind of um, experiencing something culturally different, having to work a little bit harder to to access it. It's never really been a an issue and uh i think with crime it's like we were you know like Dugray being the sort of lead guy sort of set the that's it because he's he's local to here he's like kind of east scotland kind of of sort of um five guy so it set the it set the kind of tone for it and um you had people like like jamie Sivis who plays gilman was just he he wasn't going to compromise at all like he's just i mean i mean i'm I'm from and I can't understand them when he's he's, he's ripping off like that. So it's uh, it's, it's brilliant to you know, and I I think again, it's like we had that benefit of um, the streaming platforms are great because you you kind of you know, if you're limited like in Britain in TV even ten years ago. Um, even five years ago, you were limited to to terrestrial platforms. You're you're limited to kind of BBC, ITV, Channel Four, and there's a limit to what you can get away with. There, yeah. Really, uh, they, they have to be catch all, and they have to be a kind of a bit blanded out the the dramas there. So, but but um, on the streaming platforms, it can come from a cultural place. You can be a bit more, um, you can be a bit more adventurous and a bit more honest and you know authentic about how you how you see what's what's happening.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the two b- biggest global successes on Netflix have been Squid Game and Money Heist, not, yes. not English or American. Yeah. Like, again, yeah, you, you wouldn't Spanish have thought that previously.
1: Yeah, you got a Spanish language and a Korean program. And it's like, um, <laughs> it's funny, like, you know, the, the um, there's so much um, of it. It's like people will want, you know, they, they, they take an interest in things and it's like the, they're much less... Uh, Prescriptive and people, you know, people are just a bit more cosmopolitan than programmers. Give them credit for. I mean, sixteen-year-old um, upstairs, she's she she says that you know she, you you can't watch this in uh, in dubbed. You have to watch it subtitled in the you know in Korean and all that. Yeah, yeah. so so? People, you know, I think people are much more sort of um, they're much more into that kind of diversity than uh, than, than we'd imagine. Um,
0: um, imagine half of the of the dialogue from the character of Dougie being dubbed, that would be terrible to to, to, to not get his wonderful delivery and, and visceral visceral anger and everything he does.
1: I would rather they did subtitles and dubbed them because it's like, you couldn't really, you you lose the impact of um, someone as a character. Completely.
0: So, I mean, so so how was it, Writing this as a screenplay because it's 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 adapted from your novel, but you and and Dean Cavanagh have 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 been the ones to adapt it as such. So how's how's that been as yeah? As well, the, process? the novel,
1: the, you know, the, the novel was set <laughs> in Miami, and we originally did the script's based in Miami, but it was, it was difficult to raise the money having a an American, you know, a Scottish lead actor, a, a Scottish lead character yeah. in an American kind of drama, which it would have been. And, you know, because I was living in the States at the time, I'd been over there for 10 years, and I was tra- we were trying to raise the money through contacts there. It was just proven to be such a, a pain to do it, you know. I mean, yeah. Probably we'd have still been at it now. So what we did, we, we got together with a producer, Tony Wood, who was absolutely brilliant, and then Polly Hill, who was the head of drama at ITV, and she was really excited about Britbox, and she was saying, this is maybe the, the, the place for it. And then Tony had to said, well, there's, there's a, a kind of backstory within the novel crime, which is you know, only about twenty five percent of the novel, which is about Lennox's is going kind to of break down in Edinburgh this, at the hands of this killer before he goes to Miami. So we yeah. thought, well, let's take that out of it and make that the series. Let's and just inflate that. Mm-hmm. And that was great for us because, um, great for me because you know I don't really like adapting my own stuff because it, you feel that somebody else has to come in and do it. You know, I just feel that like I need to I need, I need change a bit, you know, because I, I don't trust myself to change it because I'm a bit too close to it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and that's why Dean, you know, is, is really great to work with. But the great thing about this was because it was only 25%, you know, percent of what we have, you know, of, of the book, there was a lot of leeway to to redo the characters and to put you know, proper yeah. art onto them and um, and just to flesh it out a bit. You know, so that was... Um, that was good fun to do that, you know, so it felt like adapting something, but also felt like writing something original too, you know, so I yeah. kind of got the best of both worlds out of it.
0: I love that. Um, and another thing that struck me was how little we've seen Edinburgh on TV because it looks beautiful. It shot your your DOP, Will Pew. the whole sh- show looks amazing, but, but as a location, as a, a, set, a setting, yeah, it's perfect because I mean, it's sorry, got so many winding the, streets and.
1: I mean, I think, you know, the actors were all brilliant and there was a great cast. But I think you know the two that you know the directors were both of them were great. Like, but yeah. um, the two heroes really you know, for me were were Will and uh, the DOP and Tom the the production designer. You know, because yeah. they did such an amazing job. You know, because we said you know right from the off, but was like um, I said, you know, I said you know we, we I talked to us. Well, talk to us about Dean. I talked to about Dougray and uh, with um, Tony about it, and um, and also Polly, and uh, James and David, the directors as well, and we're, we were all adamant that we didn't want it to look like any other British TV drama, or TV cop drama. We wanted yeah. to look big and cinematic, and um, I mean, obviously, you know, sort of. I've, I've lived, I don't have a TV here, so I've never really, I've never been a. a I've never watched a lot of British television, you know. I didn't want it to be like a British cop drama in any way. And I want to you know, I'm more, more influenced through by the big you know, HBO shows in America, you know, and the, yeah. the you know, the way that they don't we've still got this mentality in Britain that um everybody's watching this on a, a twenty inch screen basically, yeah. you know, stuck in the corner. I mean, people have got, like, 72-inch screens and, you know, wrap around sound systems and all that. They don't want everything to be compressed <clears throat> into one little room, you know, with a, a, a neon overhead strip and a sort of, uh, you know, and a kind of crappy industrial kind of, like, dole office desk and all that. you Yeah. yeah.
0: Um,
1: so we wanted it to be big and cinematic and show the, you know, quite, quite panoramic as well, you know, and, uh, and show all the different sides of the city, you know, show... Um, Posh Georgian crescents of the new town and all that, but also show the schemes and show the, and show the, um, and, you know, just get a bit of diversity around it and just get, you know, and so, so that was, uh, you know, they were absolutely fantastic. And, you know, when you think that uh, the the level of production that we got out of the budget was absolutely astonishing. And that was due to their craft and their genius, basically.
0: Yeah, yeah. And uh, again, it's, uh, it sounds like, a dream job to be the production designer to be wandering around edinburgh and finding w- which scene goes where because it is that kind of, of, of city isn't it if you've been there particularly if you've been there dr- drinking on a night out so many of these alleyways become so s- cinematic all these stairs yeah, going up here yeah, and things I mean, like I, that it
1: is just, you know it's like um it's a great City to have uh, for that kind of subject matter as well because it is very gothic. Well, these kind yeah. of twisting sort of wee kind of alleyways and stuff like that, and uh, it's you know it's great to be able to to be able to use it. You know to be able to sort of really utilize this as a as a fascinating place. You know because I mean I you know I was I came back and did lockdown here uh, because I was you know I was in the states and like my mum's ninety two and all that. I thought I better kind of get quite. You know, close because this lockdown could be quite um, traumatic for her. So um, uh, I came back and I hadn't really lived here consistently. I've got a flat here, but I haven't really lived here for for any length of time um, since I was a teen, really. And I just, I just really vibed on it again because all you can do is walk, you know. So I've I've, I've found bits of the city that have kind of been completely transformed. There are other bits I've forgotten about and bits I didn't even know, you know. know, And uh, it's just been great sort of getting into this place again and, get, and really allowing it to sort of um, to re-inspire me after all these years away.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's been... I'd imagine it's been a hell of a, a journey for you with obviously moving down to London and, as you mentioned, M- Miami and everything that's happened in between. So we touched upon it earlier, a feeling of almost unworthiness that of of how easy it happened for you. So how was it when that hit? Because that's also a lot to deal with, with the book and the film. And I was at uni at that time and train spotting as a book, as a film, the posters, those characters were a key part of the culture of our lives kind of thing. So as that being your first attempt and then everything that followed, how did that impact you and how did you, you balance it, I guess?
1: I, I realised quite quickly that when you write uh, a book or you write um, or you do a, a film or, uh, or, or, or a play or, or anything like that, that it's, it's a kind of act of giving away, you know, you're taking it out yourself and you're giving it to the world and you can never be responsible for how it's kind of received, you know, so it's yeah. like you've, you've let go of it, you know, and you've, you've kind of let go of it emotionally. And, um, and it's really, it's like, uh, I mean, I've, I've I've met a lot of people that I really admired and looked up to, you know, that I thought they're absolute kind of stars and they were kind of heroes of mine and all that. And when I've met them, I've kind of thought that I just want to dive in and ask them about all the stuff that they've done and all that, and how you know, and then tell them how much it impacted on me and all that, you know. And I think, well, and I got to that point was thinking, you know, I've become pals over the years with Iggy Pop, who I absolutely idolised, you know. And I thought, when I, when I first met him, I'm going to tell him how much he means to me, how much all this stuff means to me. And I thought, well, actually, no, because I'm, I'm making it all about me. You know, mm. it is all, it is, it's all—it's all about me. It's how I react to sort of a, a cultural source, and you know, and he obviously knows that because I've, I've referenced him in the book and I'm coming to meet him. Just kind of um, just be cool and, and start asking him questions and find out about what his life is like now and what he's kind of up to now and all that. And um, you know, so a sort of uh, you know, it's it's really flattering that people are interested and so moved by it and all that. But it's all I am is just a kind of. Um, a stepping stone on people's personal journey you know what right, I mean yeah that's if, if, beautiful. if they, they have not found it through if they hadn't found it through me they'd have found some other kind of cultural reference or whatever you know so it's flattering and it's great that it's, it's been me but it's really about them you know it's about it's about uh, how people um, how people assimilate and process culture and how they kind of um, and how they, they, they move on through it and you're just a kind of um, you're just a, a kind of enabler, really, I think, because everything is bubbling around underneath her it's just kind of, it just needs somebody to pull it together, basically yeah,
0: yeah, I love that so uh, I mean crime and obviously train spotting acid house ecstasy, all of these drugs and addiction play a big a big part in these stories, and I think it's far more common and comfortable to talk about now, but particularly in the in the train spotting days, it wasn't necessarily a pop culture discussion i mean i I now there's another podcast i I co-host sometimes called say why to drugs and that's with a doctor called dr susie gage and my role on that is essentially to be the lived experience of 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 many of these drugs because in my past i've 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 played with a lot of them i don't choose to, to do any now but it feels like a far more comfortable discussion how's that felt for you over the years as you Initially, kind of outrage at you being so blunt and honest and graphic about tr- drug use, to kind of now where maybe it's a lot of shows have that kind of that, that honesty.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's like you know, it's it's such an on the present thing, and you. I found it really, I found it really hard to write about urban life without referencing drugs and yeah. drug use because it just seemed to be, you know, it seemed pretentious not you know not to to write about it, um, and I, that was really you know i wasn't sort of um i mean you know after you know after that happens you know the people want to talk about drugs all the time so you know i didn't want to become a poster boy for sort of um you know for kind of drugs are brilliant or drugs are shit or just you know have a perspective on drugs and all that but uh, to me it was always like um i think the the longevity of the stuff that i've done is always i think is always because it's um the boots are all you know they're all about transition they're about transition from one way of life into another you know so it's like yeah. and they're, they're basically that transition is the end of industrialization it's about the end of paid work basically it's how we cope um how we cope without work that, that we get paid for basically and that's a big kind of challenge for humanity you know so it's like there's a there's that idea of redundancy you know that kind of physical and spiritual redundancy and yeah. um, Every time you have a transition in a society, you have um, something that comes along and fills the gap. You know, it's usually you have a, a kind of plague, basically an attendant plague. You know, when you had feudalism to capitalism, and everybody's crushed into sort of towns and all that, you have all this kind of hygiene issues. So you have the Black Death and all this kind of stuff coming out. And then um, now it's like a psychic thing. You have a you have a you're moving into from capitalism into conceptualism, where you can't really monetize anything as you know, other you know. And then um, we have. The attendant plague is like a kind of the the drugs are the attendant plague in that transition because uh, they you know they take away the pain you know the painkillers but they're also for for some people it's about kind of um, enlightenment and conscious and consciousness raising and all that sort of stuff so everybody has their own way of coping with this kind of societal change and drugs are part of the the mechanism by which we do that you know rightly or wrongly. Um, you can use wisely or use unwisely, but that's where they are, you know, and I think that, um, you know, that that's part of the resonance for it, but it's more of a, I see these things as more of an effect and a cause, you know, the the cause is this kind of massive upheaval and social change that we're going through, and the effect is that sort of um, trying to understand it through, you know, experiencing different levels of consciousness through drugs and trying to negate the pain of it, and the loss of it, and hardship of it, through through uh, through drugs.
0: Yeah, completely. That that I've lived in the same small town in Essex my whole life, and that escapism element I think is massive. Like again, there's a lot of drugs that people do in my area that I don't. I'm not a fan of. I've never. <laughs> there's there's certain drugs I've enjoyed. There's certain drugs drugs I've never been a fan of. But there's never a judgment either because I also understand the the weight of boredom. And the weight of of mundanity and the weight of all these these different things where it's like well, I get the idea of needing some kind of escape, and what you choose or what works for you there is is understandable do you Do you feel growing up where you you grew up and then tr- train spotting feeling like it was the first thing to tell the mainstream the the stories of these streets and in 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 your voice in 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 the in the, the the Scottish dialect, did you feel a responsibility to keep telling the stories of those streets? But then, did you also feel chained to them? Because obviously, with things like crime, you 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 did then move away from it and and take it to Miami and things like that. What was your your relationship with the streets that that you were telling these stories on? I guess
1: it's, it's something that um, I've kind of not been really kind of aware of it until you, until you kind of hang out with your pals and all that. And they, they sort of, um, they kind of expect you to be different in a lot of ways, you know, and I'll, I'll always, you know, if, we, if a bunch of us get together, we'll, you know, we'll go down the central bar and let walk and um, sit, sit around, uh, you know, sit around one of these big seats, about 30 of us. And they'll be looking at me intensely, you know, if I've not been back for a few months or whatever, they'll kind of, uh, and it's almost that kind of thing that uh, they're waiting to see if if you've changed in some way, you know, so, uh, yeah. so what I do is I, I just, you know, especially coming back from the stage, you know, I just play up to it and I say, I say, right guys, I'm going to hit the restroom. They go, the fucking restroom, you're a you're a You'll get a <laughs> know uh, um, It breaks the ice basically. And then you, you know, you, you have a, a chat about it and uh, you, you realize that, um, you obviously have changed in the years and all that, and you know it's like, and you, you're not, you're no, I'm no longer this man of the streets, and it would be pretentious to kind of to say, you know, but you still, you still hang out with the same people and drinking the same pubs, and you still kind of have all your mates from the scheme and, and all that. You know, so I never ever, even when I moved, I, you know, no matter where I've moved to, I've never cut myself off from um, the people that I've grown up with. You know, it's like my probably my my two best pals are still my two oldest pals that I've known since I was six years old you know so of you know the you can't really when you have these kind of long term relationships you can't really get too divorced from it because you know people they they know what the bodies are buried like you know they know everything about you basically so there's no point in um, you know in trying to have these kind of uh, airs and graces about things so i haven't been i haven't you know i suppose I, it's not been a conscious thing i just haven't separated myself from where I've come from, I've always, um, I've always came back and I've always hung out and I've always gone to all the, you know, all the, the weddings and the funerals and the, you know, everything like that, you know, so it's, and I've all, you know, and the football is a thing that, you know, you can, kind of, you can meet, instead of going round people individually, you know, you can, you can meet a big bunch of guys. Yeah. You know? 2030 of them, and just have a bit of a a tear on a Saturday. So it's, it's all. I've always kept that going, and uh, I don't know. You know, it's like you know. I suppose it's just part of who I am. You know, you kind of come from a a very close knit community, and it just stays with you.
0: Yeah, completely. Have have you found that in your time in America, you become almost, (laughs) almost reactively more Scottish? than ever, I, I know any time I've been working abroad yeah. or whatever, I swear I come back and I'm the most cockney guy in the world, I'm not even, co- I'm, yeah. I'm South London and Essex, but I think as a a fear of losing who I am and where I'm from, when I am away I become more and more, alright mate yeah, no problem geez
1: <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's like I had to tone it down a bit in America I did get a bit kind of wanky transatlantic for a while, but just because nobody understood me basically, <laughs> You know it's like uh, When when you you say, like, uh, to somebody in a a bar, like, my wife doesn't understand me, it's like, it's not a chat-up line, it's an actual statement of fact, you know. It's like, you know, you do have to sort of um, tone it down a bit, especially with with, uh, my accent, but there's certain things you can't explain to Americans, you can't explain why, um, you know, you can't explain, oh, we've got a queen, uh, we've got a house of lords, and all this kind of stuff. They look at you and say, what? fuck oh, guys! You know, and you say, "Oh, you know, I'm Scottish," but you know, our, our parliaments in London were ruled from England. They go, "What?" You know, they they don't can kind of understand all this. And it's like, you guys are fucking muppets, basically. You know, that's that's the way they, you know, the, the way that we're seen. Um, and it's really interesting. You know, it's like when you get uh, when you get away from. I mean, when I was like in the states, I lived in um, mainly in Chicago. San Francisco and Miami I made, I made a conscious uh, decision not to live in either New York or LA because mm-hmm. I was going there so much for work you know and I, I got to know the places really well and I love them you know the great times but I wanted to really feel as if I lived in America rather than some sort of sort of super metropolitan kind of sort of neoliberal transit so yeah. yeah
0: yeah completely it's, it's, it's an interesting one I always remember Doug Stanhope coming to the UK just after Obama had got in and speaking about how he'd previously had to feel embarrassed about being an American under 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 Bush, like when he'd come to England. But, but it was like, but of course, I knew you couldn't really judge me because you've got a king and a queen and,
1: a yeah, yeah, and princes yeah. and princesses
0: <laughs> and all this, this Game of Thrones mystical nonsense. So, yeah, it makes some, some sense there. But I guess one of the ways to to keep connected and keep on top of these things is social media and as much as i have my concerns and the dislikes of social media i'm a big fan of your approach to social media the the gleeful vitriol uh with which you dispense <laughs> um your 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 views is a ray of neon light pollution in a in a increasingly gloomy cesspit so it's how do you find social media? Because it is—it's a weird hole to fall into at times.
1: It is, you know. It's one of these things that you kind of—you um, you, know—you're compelled to take it seriously, but you can't as well, you know. So I—I I, I like that reflects kind of what, what I kind of put out there. So I'm like, well, what I, I try—what I try to do is like when when, when I when I, when I don't like something or if something kind of winds me up and all that counterintuitive we feel you know I don't know why but I, I kind of feel very cheerful about that. You know, I like yeah. I like to be provoked and irritated. And I like to show that I'm irritated, but I like to do it in quite a kind of jocular way. You know, so I think it's just you know I think it's fun to yeah. just to just kind of call it to kind of speak the truth to power and call them out for all the cunts that they are and all that. just just jump in and and do it. And it's like a it's like a sort of you know the, the, the thing is that I do, what I, I, I very rarely do is have a debate with anybody on Twitter or just make some incendiary statement and then go. Yeah. And then, then you know, you get some say, well, that's not very positive, is it? You have to, you know, how can you defend your position? It's fucking fleeting thoughts. That's all it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not, it's not a place for reason, debate and discussion. It's bang, fleeting thought, get out there, you know, you know, like fucking Boris Johnson's a cunt, here's my new fucking, um, my new book, yeah. kind of uh, um, 9.99 on Amazon or something like that. You know, this is this is just the way, you know, and it's not, you know, oh, twerking and all but it's just the way it is, basically. It's like this is the way that your thoughts kind of operate, you know, and I... You don't want to spend all day there, and you can't. It, I, I love it when you're at train stations and an airports. So you can just go, you know, you can because you're pissed off at airports anyway, especially now. <laughs> you know, you, you, you can, nobody can travel and be happy now. So you just like fuck this, yeah. fuck this, fuck, you know, fuck British Airways, fuck Boris Johnson, you know, fuck um, Joe Biden or whatever. You know, you just you, you can just fire it all out. I love it. I annoyed
0: someone the other day on Twitter because I I made I expressed an opinion on something, and I, I made a point at the end of going. But by the way, I'm not looking to debate this. I don't want to convince you. I don't want you to convince me. And so, and someone was all annoyed at, or numerous people all annoyed at that. But my argument was: look, I'm expressing this to people who have chosen to follow me, so they've implied that they want my opinion on, or or at least they're interested in my opinion on stuff. That doesn't mean I'm interested in the Opinions of hundreds of thousands of strangers, so it's not yeah. kind of hypocritical and it's, I don't see it as an an arrogance thing. It's like, oh, I've got an opinion on something, but equally, as you say, I don't want to spend all day on here hearing everyone's opinion. On it. <laughs> no, I've no. done, I've come to my conclusion, I'm slinging it out there and I'm walking off.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it out. and it's like, you know, I mean, it's like kind of fun. Um, I mean, I, there was one time that fairly recently that somebody had, had steamed in and said something, and it was like kind of, uh, and somebody just manifestly proved me wrong. Basically, it was just nonsense. You know, what I said was just a, you know, was a fleeting impulse, and it wasn't kind of, um, it wasn't thought through. And it was nonsense, and, and uh, I just wrote, uh, I tweeted back, and I said like, um, fair enough, you know, you're yeah, you're right enough. Yeah, you know, I I was kind of completely wrong with that, like, yeah. And it's just like this kind of you felt this whole um, you, you felt you made you know it's like everybody was so sort of nice about it. oh that's really good. of you. So, you know it's like you know it's like you kind of um, that the idea that you have to defend or be invested in this kind of this kind of sort of mad impulse that you've had, you know, it's you know it's it's, it's nonsense as well. You know, it's it is about thoughts basically. You know, it's about firing out of a kind of pleasing thought. So yeah, it's it's you know, and it's strange the way that each of these medium kind of dictate how you are. I mean, I'm all I don't do Facebook. I'm only on Twitter and Instagram, and uh, you know, it's that kind of thing that if people sort of saw you on, you know, if people got an impression from you on Twitter, they would think this guy's a total cunt, you know. And <laughs> then if you saw you on Instagram, you'd think, this this guy's fucking wonderful. He's great, you know. it's, it's the medium, you know, it's like, it's like Twitter's just like nan, 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 yeah. And Instagram is like, whoa, whoa! Look at me! Look at my wonderful life!
0: I'm fun. <laughs> I couldn't relate more. That's that's sure. yeah. That sums it up perfectly. Well, I'll I'll start to wrap things up as as you've given me a a lot of your of of your morning already. But I kind of want to ask what's ahead. And normally that's a tough question for anyone in film or TV or writing because there's caveats around what you can and can't talk about. But I'm kind of interested in it more than ever here because. As you've said, the pandemic has brought you back to Edinburgh for the first time in, in, or to live in Edinburgh for the first time in, in however many years. Has it changed anything? Has it changed what you want to write about, the stories you want to tell? Has it, has it given you any, any,
1: yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of, um, it's a, you know, it's a terrible thing to say and all that. I kind of feel, I feel kind of amazingly guilty because it, it's been so devastatingly horrible for so many people. But um, the pandemic's been fucking great for me. Like, yeah. you know, It's just been, it's like, because it's, um, I've had to isolate uh, for so long and it's like, and that's what you need to do as a writer. You need to isolate. And I'm terrible at that. I'm always yeah. going out and disturbing people and, <laughs> and having fun and just like sort of um, playing around and looking to distract myself. And I couldn't do it in the pandemic. I just had to sit down and smash through it. So I've got a lot of stuff out the road that I've been planning to do for a long time and always been putting off. I never thought it was actually finished. You know, so I've just been incredibly prolific, and uh, it's now I can you know it's, I almost feel like uh, I can kick back. You know, Because yeah. I've got so much stuff in the pipeline that's going to be coming out over the next few years. It gives me a space again. I think now to. Um, because you always think, you know, you always think you're going to write something that's really brilliant, but you've not done it yet, you know. And that's how I feel that there's something that I really need to to do that I've not done yet. And I feel that I've got to, once I've done this and I've got stuff out, I'm going to have a good gestation period to think about something that I've not really done before. I want to do something completely different uh, yeah. than original. But uh, we've done have done so much in this last couple of years. You know, I've written two novels, and um, one's coming out next year. I've obviously written the this, this screenplays for Crying with Dean uh, and got that filmed and out. And um, we're doing the, um, I've kind of got my, my kind of, my techno double act with um, uh, my mate Steve McGuinness and we've, we've written the songs for the Trainspot and Musical, which is starting oh, to wow. come out in December, you know, we wrote, we wrote um, a bunch of original songs for it. And, you know, I've been writing, I'm writing this novella now with uh, with a novella with John King and Alan Warner, which we did a, a one previously. And, you know, so like uh, myself, myself and um, Carol Lobin from DJ Magazine and, and Steve have set up a, a, a label, basically a, a record label. So we're going to start policing stuff, bringing stuff out on that, you know, from you know, different artists. And I've got a big slew of stuff in America as well that I'm getting back across in December to start to work on some of that stuff over there. So it's just been really, really busy for me. And it's been in a great way because I'm not being distracted. You know?
0: Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you very much for- for your time man it's been an absolute pleasure to chat and get into it
1: thank you and Um, as I said
0: I adored crime my plan originally was I got sent the preview links I thought I'll watch one or two ahead of the chat because I only had a day or so binged the whole lot just start to finish absolutely adored it (laughs) so yeah good work on that and as I said Thinking about how much f- f- fun you, you and or Deed must have had writing the character of of, of Dougie was the one that stood out for me as yeah, the, the fun mean, for the was writer.
1: Was, I know Jamie who's playing him as a mate and I thought I can really go to town and just kind of get Sivers, kind of just be in service basically.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much, man. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thanks a lot, buddy. been listening to scroobius pips distraction pieces
0: there we go that was irvin welsh literal living legend in my eyes that flew by and i'm really pleased he gave me that amount of time because um press junkets and whatnot it's often a short a short chat but he was willing to hand over like an hour or so of his time and that's um always a beautiful thing so hope you enjoyed that next week We've got a cheeky two-parter, but um, I'll tell you more about that when it comes. So, uh, yeah, until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.